Please be seated. I want to open this ordination sermon with three thank yous. First of all, Bishop Lyons, to you, thank you for calling me to serve this church. I remember exactly where I was on I-24 when the bishop called me and said he wanted me to come here as interim pastor. I said I would talk to God about it. I would talk to my wife about it. I would talk to myself about it. But before I hung up the phone, I knew that this was God's call, and you were the instrument of that. So thank you. Secondly, to the people and vestry of all saints, thank you for your invitation to serve this wonderful parish. The more I experience grace with you, the more I love you. And so I'm doubly honored by your hospitality today. Matt and Jared, my friends, what can I say? By your invitation, I am humbled and honored and a little frightened by your attaching so much significance, spiritual importance, to me and what I might say. Your honoring me reminds me of Groucho Marx, who was once invited to join a country club, and he refused because he said any country club whose standards were so low that they would invite him to be a member, he was not willing to join. So by your invitation, it makes me very suspicious of your spiritual state. (laughs) But thank you. Let us pray. Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to offer a lot of insightful stuff this morning, like visiting preachers are supposed to do, drawing pastoral principles from the Gospel reading of John 10 on the Good Shepherd, and quoting the scriptures, the church fathers, maybe a little bit in Latin and Greek, with an 18th century hymn thrown in and a 17th century poem for flavoring, together with scholarly commentators, theologians, saints. But let me warn you all in advance, I don't know what I'm talking about. After 40 years of ordained ministry, I still feel like a beginner. All I know about ministry is that God comes When I came here as an interim pastor, I had no overarching plan, no strategy. I simply ran the paces, doing the things that a pastor does. Writing sermons, officiating worship, visiting parishioner. And then, God came. God always comes. If we offer ourselves for his use, using his means of grace... God's work, done in God's way, offered in God orientation, will never lack God's grace. And how we each and all need God's grace. Okay, let's now turn to our text, John chapter 10. And in the 40 minutes remaining me... Okay, I was seeing if you were paying attention. Let me begin by talking about 
a chiasma, a very useful literary device found in the Old Testament and New Testament and all ancient literature. The definition of a chiasma, and by the way, the word chiasma comes from the letter chi, which looks like an X. So when you write Xmas, you're not writing Xmas, you're writing Chimus. So chiasma is this X folded over to make a kind of inverted V. And there's a balance to this, that there is an A corresponds with an A prime, B with B prime, C with C prime, and so on, however far they choose to go. Let's take a simple example from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You know the verse, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he shall despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, if you were following my hand in that, you would notice I was playing out the chiasma. Two masters corresponds with God and mammon. Hate corresponds with despise. Cling corresponds to love. It's a perfect balance. And three things happen in the use of a chiasma. First of all, it's a memory device. I mean, I tried to memorize that verse when I was a college student. And I was real good until I got to those four verbs, and it was just a muddle. But as soon as I discovered it was a chiasma, it just snapped right into place. Secondly, a chiasma gives pleasure. Now, we're not too much of a literary bunch, we modern Americans, but even we enjoy a good Shakespearean sonnet or an American limerick. It's just fun. And thirdly, it identifies a central point. Many people look at that verse and they think the point is no one can serve God and mammon. But a chiasma does a secondary instruction. When it comes to a point, that literally is a point. When you find out who your master is, love your master and cling to your master. And so much of what appears in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the words of Jesus themselves, are chiasma pointing us to something that we, not knowing the structure, lose along the way. The longest chiasma is in Genesis chapter verse, uh, chapters 6 through 9. It's 85 verses. That's a long chiasma. And there's 17 steps. And it's a muddle, and it's a confusion, and it's really interesting. But what's so fascinating is that when it comes to that point, it's one verse, and it says in four words in Hebrew, and God remembered Noah. That's grace. And so the author gets to make that special point. Now some of you are thinking, God helped the preacher. He's brought the wrong notes to the pulpit. We're here for an ordination sermon, and he's haranguing us about Old Testament literary devices. Well, if you work with this and work through it, you're going to get the blessing of the point along the way. I was thinking we were doing Psalm 23 today. That's a four-step chiasma. And the point of it is, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And my experience as a minister... Working with people is that everyone, somewhere along the line, is walking through a shadow. And God comes. Grace comes. What I'm arguing against here is a simplistic understanding of pastoral ministry. 
that it's all walking apart, that it's photo ops of babies being baptized and couples tying the knot and grateful parishioners burying their loved ones. But funerals are sometimes occasions for the worst family fights. And tired marriages come unraveled. And smiling babies grow up to be sinning adults who cheat and lie and steal and kill and swindle and fornicate and pimp and kill. And many profess and call themselves Christians. Now, by the way, if you were paying attention, that sentence was a very carefully constructed five-point chiasma. Thank you for noticing And the very central point of that was evil. And that's what Jesus does in chapter 10. We're finally going to get to chapter 10 here. That's your call. And that's your call. To stand in the midst of the evil place in the lives of your parishioners and bring grace To bring grace in the name of the Lord of life. That grace was announced by John in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Your job, Matt, your job, vocation, Jared, is the same. To bring life, Zoe life, into the death of those places. Jesus came to give life, life in abundance. And you by your priesthood, are to be the instruments of that grace coming. I finally arrived at our Gospel reading, John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I memorized that when I was 17 years old, right after my conversion. And I was in my 60s before I discovered the first half of that verse is death. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that they might have life. That's our situation. I mean, church has its pleasing and pleasant and happy moments. But this is a hard world we live in. So I want to bring you five principles of pastoral leadership and service, all of them from John chapter 10. The first one is this. A good shepherd is first of all himself a sheep before he is a shepherd. Verses 1 and true. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but enters by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Christ is your shepherd before you can be a shepherd. You know, at some point very soon, you will be making the sign of the cross. You will stand before the people and you will bless them. That's a touching thing. But remember that the blessing you make over them is also a blessing that's being made over you. Those prayers that you say for them are also prayers for you. That scripture will read for them you are also reading for you. Those sermons preached, those teachings taught, that Eucharist celebrated for them are also all for you. Let the Good Shepherd feed you. You know, you cannot give what you do not have. So let Him give to you that you can give to them. A fundamental principle of life. Number two, the Good Shepherd loves the sheep 
and he calls them each by name. Jesus said the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. You know, there's something very beautiful about relationships. You know, I love it when I walk into the foyer here, and so many of you from All Saints came up and said, Hi, Brad. That makes me feel special. And I'm sure you feel the same way. To come into your place of fellowship and people call you by name. George MacDonald, a mentor of C.S. Lewis, a 19th century uh, novelist and spiritual writer, wisely said, quote, The only ministry which is truly Christian is face-to-face. It's about people. It's always people. Jesus didn't come to save the world. He came to save you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Personally and individually. You can't mail in ministry. You can't email ministry. Yeah, I'm so touched by the complaint of one clergyman who said, I'm so busy doing church work that I can't do the work of the church. The work of the church is people. These people whom God loves so much. One of my great privileges when I was here at All Saints was something I hated every day. And that was to lock up the building. And I had to go around to every door and window all the rooms and are the lights off and is this door really locked? And I'd come in here and turn off the lights and move some chairs and the lights were always on in the chapel when I'd get that. But on the way out, while I was grinding my teeth in frustration, I'd stop at a pew. And I'd pray for this family, the Longs, and I know where they sit. They always sit in that pew. And I'd put my hand on that pew and I'd Pray for the longs. I thank God for my pray for needs in their lives I might be aware of. And then there, and then there, and then there. People along the way. It's always about people. Know the names. I never want to belong to a church where I can't know the name of all the parishioners and their dogs and their cats. When I was in the eighth grade, President Dwight Eisenhower came to town. His mother had died. She was being buried in Abilene. They flew in. In those days, you got off the jet, you know, onto the pavement. They had a microphone up. He came out. He addressed the governor of the state, the mayor of Wichita, the uh, chairman of the Republican Party. He waved at the crowd and said, Oh, I love, you know, America, but I just love especially you Kansans. You're my people. I love you. And I'm, gosh, I'm just a I thought, that is so cool. He loves me. I've seen him on TV and he loves me. And my dad said, look, he's going to come down to the cyclone fence and the politicians work the crowd. So we're going to be on the front. You sit on my shoulders. You've got a little American flag. And when he comes down, he'll be shaking hands and I'm going to lean forward. He, he won't miss us. You're going to shake hands with the President of the United States. And I immediately thought, nobody's going to beat me Monday in show and tell. <laughs> And so he came down and he was, well, thank you for coming. God bless you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming out. Good to see you. And he came right up and he shook hands with this person. And then he shook hands with this person. And I was leaning over with my little tiny flag. And I was reaching out. And he never looked at me. And went right down and then went off to Abilene. 
And when we got back in the car, my mom, dad, brother, and sister, and I, I cried all the way home. And my mom says, you can't expect him to shake your head. I go, I know, I know, sure. But I didn't know. Now I was in a boys' choir, and the next day, Sunday, I was vested in church. I was sitting right about there, and I'm looking at the priest, I'm looking at the organist, I'm looking at Dorothy M. Miller, who ran a tough Christian education program, and the priest was down here, and he quoted the comfortable words, God so loved the world. And I thought, you know, that's just like the President of the United States. He loves the governor and the mayor and the chairman of the Republican Party, and he knows them by name. And God, just like that, he knows the bishop by name, he knows the rector by name, he knows the organist by name. But I'm just a nameless face in the crowd. And for the next nine years of my life, that's who God was for me. And when I hit some rough patches, that God was just inadequate to my need. How blessed was that November day in 1969 when God said to me, Brad, I love you. And it was personal. So as a good shepherd loves the sheep, he calls them by name. Call your people by name. And by that, enable them to hear God calling them by name. Number three, I'll skip that one for the moment because it's our chiasma point. So number four, the good shepherd feeds his sheep. Various verses in this passage speak to this. Uh, but they all are the same point. He leads them out. And he feeds them what they need. The 2019 Book of Common Prayer has this vow in his promise to the Archbishop of the Installation Service. Father Kalen says, I promise to be a faithful shepherd to your flock, the Lord being my helper. Do you hear the pastor language there? And Bishop Frank in his charge in this ordination service will say, you are to teach and warn and provide for God's family, to seek for his sheep in this world, that they may be saved through Christ forever. Remember how great is the treasure committed to your charge. They are the sheep for whom Christ died. Do you hear that pastoral language? The good shepherd leads his feet, sheep. And that worries me about America in the year 2023. 300 years ago, Western civilization was in crisis, just like we're in a crisis today in our woke culture. 300 years ago, it was estimated in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, and in the Anglican Church, one-fourth of all clergy were either agnostic or atheist. Think about that. One-fourth of the clergy. And you know they weren't feeding their people. But then there stood up a man, 15 years later, named John Wesley, who found his heart strangely warmed. And he went out to all of England, and he taught others to go to England, like a good shepherd to feed his sheep. And how did he do that? This is what he said. This is uh, John Wesley. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. Give me at any price the book of God. I have it. 
Here it is. It is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence I open. I read his book. And they changed Western civilization for the next two centuries. We can do the same and in the same way. The Good Shepherd feeds his sheep, and you will do that. Preaching in the pulpit, teaching from the lectern, and communicating from house to house. Number five. The Good Shepherd does this all in obedience to God, freely and for love. Uh, I'm so Jesus says his... Uh, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to take it up, power to lay it down. This charge I have received for God. He did it for love. Not because he was paid. The English have a wonderful conceit when they talk about the clergy. The clergy are not paid a salary. Clergy are not paid wages. They're paid a living what's a living? A living is enough to keep them alive, sometimes just barely enough to keep them alive, but it's enough to keep them alive so that they would do what they would do for free if they could. Because you're doing it for love, not because you're being paid for it. You know, every time I've left a church, I've said to the vestry, my last vestry meeting, if you people paid me nothing, I would have done the same thing. And they always say to me the same thing. So now you tell us. (laughs) Well, do it for love, because Christ did it for love. I come to the last of the chiasmas, number three in our list. The Good Shepherd pays a life for the sheep. When I say life, I mean their well-being and their health. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hireling and not a shepherd who's owned the sheep or not sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees because he's a a hireling. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I want to say to you, and I want to say to your wives, you're going to pay a price. Because clergy pay a price that almost nobody but God sees. You know, there's this issue of credentials. You know, after this service, Ken and Sean is going to give you a piece of paper, and it's very eloquent, it's very beautiful, and you'll frame it, and you'll hang it on your And that's credential. And you probably have a seminary credential with lots of signatures and ribbons, and you'll put that up. And those are your credentials. But is that all? Because your credentials is a similarity to Christ who gives his life. There's an American missionary in Japan before the Second World War. During the war, he was taken and put in prisoner concentration camp and tortured as a spy. After the war was over, he came back to America to recover. But as soon as he was healthy, he went back to his church to serve and grow his church. In the late 70s, he was invited to teach a class and to preach a sermon at Yale University. And an acquaintance of mine, not good enough to call a friend, but an acquaintance of mine was there to hear this man who admired so much. 
And when the service was over, they were walking out of the chapel, and the man with my acquaintance said, well, he didn't have a whole lot to say, did he? To which my friend said, no, but a man on a cross doesn't need to say much. You are to be that man on the cross. And I'm sorry, and that's tough, but a faithful pastor will be that man on the cross. Have you ever thought about that one place in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, but you're not even 50 years old. Have you ever wondered why they said 50 years old? Why didn't they say you're not even 40 years old? And Jesus, as a carpenter, would have been a robust man and living a good life, a very robust man. And they didn't say mid-30s. They said 50. Why did they say that? This is only my own speculation, but I think the ministry was taking it out of him, and it showed. It showed. And yet what happened when it showed? People loved him. Because they knew he was paying the price. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, I am the shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the people knew that. And they knew that he paid the price. There's three words for good in the Greek language. Agathos, which means good characterized by an inner excellence. There's diakonos which is good in the sense of morally upright or in conformity to some code or law. And then there's kalos, which means good in appearance or outward form or beautiful. And the word Jesus uses here in John chapter 10 is unexpectedly kalos. I am, we could translate it, the beautiful shepherd. And you will discover with joy, as I have discovered with joy in my life, there are people who will love you because you have baptized with significance and buried with love and attention and married with caring. You have been a beautiful shepherd. That is your call. That's enough. To be so like Jesus in that regard... That people look at you and say, that's my pastor. It's the conclusion of a preacher at an ordination to charge the ordinam. I mean to continue that custom, but expand it some by making three charges. Uh, when you make a charge, the one you're charging is to stand up. So I would like, not the bishop and not the ordinands, but I would like everyone else to stand up for their being charged. Yes, please stand up to be charged. In the name of God, love your new shepherd. Pray for him, forgive him, practice forbearance, support him, help him, encourage him. It builds up. Build up Jared. Build up Matt. Thank you. Be seated. Bishop? I want to charge you. Me? You. The only time I get to do this with him. I charge you. Be a good shepherd to Jared and Matthew. They are your sheep. 
Shepherd them as Jesus shepherds you. Love them in the same five steps as John had taught us in chapter 10. Thank you. And now, friends to be ordained, please stand. I have four simple directions to you. Be a good shepherd. Be a beautiful shepherd. Agathos, Diakos, and Kalos. Be a beautiful shepherd like Jesus. Secondly, shepherd your family with Sarah and Susan. Your marriage vows were first. There is a certain denomination that I am too tactful to mention by name that does not believe that clergy can be married. We believe they can be. But your marriage vows and your ordination vows sometimes will be in tension. You can navigate those with wisdom and gentleness and forbearing. And that goes for the baptismal vows for your children. So shepherd your family. Number three, take care of yourself. For crying out loud, take your day off. You know, there's some days you just want to sit around in the living room in your underwear, drink beer, and watch TV. You can't, you can't do healthy if you are not healthy. And fourth, finally, and most importantly, hold on to Jesus. Let him be your good shepherd. Let him love you and feed you. Let him call you by name. Let him hold you in his arms. Let him bind up your wounds. Let him feed you in green pastures and refresh you by still waters. He is Zoe. He is life. He is Collis, beautiful. Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And thus, you will be his most blessed and his most blessing instruments. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.